0: Welcome to the Fruitful and Fearless podcast, where we're serving up gospel-fueled courage to the Christian woman to remain faithful in her calling. Hey everybody, welcome to the Fruitful and Fearless podcast, Jordan and Lexi here, and we have a guest today, Eric Kahn is with us from the Hardman podcast. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: And also from the Wilderness Warrior podcast, I guess. That's right. I like the deer, but what is the other one behind you, Eric?
1: Uh, that is a partial horn. I don't have enough coverage with my camera, but that's the uh, elk that I killed a couple of years ago with a muzzle loader.
0: Cool. So, our uh, icebreaker today actually has to do with hunting and wild game. So, Uh, One of the episodes I listened to of the Wilderness Warrior, I've only listened to a few, but supposedly it's real popular with the housewives, so that we should shout it out on our podcast. Um, But one of them, you had a butcher on from Illinois, and he was talking about a pastrami recipe that sounded amazing that I would really like to try this year. But uh, we like to talk about cooking a lot on here. So I thought I would ask you your favorite wild game something your favorite way to prepare something wild game or like tips about cooking wild game whatever comes to mind for you
1: yeah absolutely well I do have to say the pastrami that was a venison pastrami Uh, so it's just brined um, which is really simple that was actually the first time I'd ever done a brine but uh, Dan Burkholder convinced me that it was not so complicated and he was correct yeah that was the one that we featured uh, that Quinn had brought up and I guess Dan had already done it so basically it's the brine and then you do a smoke with a pastrami rub on there. And it's really, it's basically like a roast. You want to get a roast that doesn't have a lot of uh, connective tissue in it, kind of a solid, solid piece of meat, usually from the hind is really good. And um, it was excellent. My family, especially the little kids, like it was a little hard because I, I made it pretty spicy. So you do kind of have to watch that, but. I don't know. At present, that that's probably one of my favorite.
0: Man, I'm going to do that this year.
1: Basically, you, this is what Quinn said. He said you want to put it in the brine for like three days. So you make your brine. You put it in the brine for like three days. So it's the same as you do like a corned beef. So you corn it. Okay, yeah. And then you have really two options at that point. You can You can brine it and then you can boil it like you would corned beef or... After that, you can uh throw it on the smoker, which I did. That's what i that's that you know put a pastrami rub on, put it in the smoker, and then that's like a eh, it was like six probably six hours smoke, and then you got your delicious, amazing pastrami.
0: I'm so excited I wanna try it, so I guess you could do with this with anything right like Jared's gonna hunt for a black bear in September. I could probably do it with something from bear too, right like a roast from bear, like a neck would that work
1: yeah. The neck works really good. The other thing that people do a lot is with the, the hind quarter. So like a ham, um, okay. they'll either cure it or brine it. And then, yeah, same deal. Um, if you have a smoker, that that works really, really good. The other thing on bear, it depends what they're eating. But if you can get a bear yeah. with like the tinderloin, um, it's just like any other tenderloin. You Cut them in little medallions, put them on the grill, salt, salt and pepper, oil them to get the salt and pepper to stick. And then um, afterwards, just let them rest, put some butter on them. Five minutes later, it's really one of the best things I've ever had.
2: That sounds so good.
0: Yeah. Jared's been convincing me that I'm going to love bear. So I'm like, okay. I think he's convincing me that because he's going (laughs) to love bear hunting. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) But I've also (laughs) heard cooking with bear fat is good. So I'm like, all right, we're going to figure this out.
1: Yeah, that's actually, um, we found that out in the back country. We shot a bear in Idaho. And uh, my buddy... Uh, he just took the tenderloins and bear fat and we just you know we just uh cooked them in that now the one thing with bear you have to be careful cuz like the hog family trichinosis uh can be an issue so you definitely want to make sure you cook it thoroughly
0: all right well i guess we'll just jump right into our topic then now thank you for telling us about some cooking things we always like that so today our <laughs> absolutely
2: episode,
0: we are titling this how the patriarchy makes happy wives So we wanted to do this episode today to kind of be a voice of truth and reason in a world that's being duped and lied to by feminists. Sadly, lies about women ruling the world and the future being female have even seeped into the church, and Christians are even scared and embarrassed to embrace that father-led households are actually God's design for families and the world. The truth of the matter is that it's quite destructive for women to deny their nature, and it's always going to be best for humanity to obey God. That when God tells women to submit to their husbands for husbands to lead and protect their wives, that it's actually the best and happiest way for women. That truly biblically patriarchal husbands are for the flourishment and betterment of women. That God's design is happy families functioning in the way that he intended them to. So Lexi and I just wanted to go ahead and out ourselves today as wives of patriarchal (laughs) husbands (laughs) and let you all know that we're actually quite happy about it. That we actually like this way that God has commanded households to run and that we don't even need anyone to rescue us from our husbands. Um, so don't email us. We're good. <laughs>
1: so,
0: yeah. Um, Eric, Eric did a really good episode recently called What is Biblical Patriarchy on the Hardman podcast? And we'll link that in show notes. So we had him on today and we're going to
2: further flush out
0: this idea, ask him some questions and see where it goes.
2: So, okay. So as long as I've known you, Eric, you've kind of been touching on this topic, but I'm curious in your own words, how did you find yourself talking so much about patriarchy and feminism?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And and Jordan, I love the introduction. That was, uh, you pretty much summarized everything very succinctly. And I always love to hear that women are enjoying patriarchy. It's where, where they flourish. Um, obviously, that was really one of the first things that I noticed as I was getting into really the subject matter of gendered piety. So what does it mean for a man and woman to be godly in Christ? Um, And I really started from the perspective of masculinity. That was my interest. And one of the things that I, I really noticed as I was asking that question, you really have to go to Genesis 1 through 3, and you have to look at what is the ontology of men and women. That is, what is the nature of being? How did God make them to be? And in a way, it's kind of like looking at an instruction manual. If I want to be obedient as a man, I need to know what a man is for. So I started looking really in the early chapters of Genesis. And you're looking at things like Genesis 2.15, a man is to work and keep. That's the really the heart and primary way that he fulfills the dominion mandate, um, mm-hmm. as, as we're told by God. Right. Well... It's not long after that. You're looking at masculinity and you start to realize, well, Eve is right there in Genesis 1 through 3 with Adam. Of course, she's taken from his rib. She's created to be his helper, his helpmeet. And so really, as I was looking at masculinity, it's like, well, you, you really can't talk about that without talking about what is a woman's godly role. Like, What, is her, what does it mean for her to be obedient to her sex as well? So as I was delving into these these subject matters it really became more about gendered piety um and I think I mean really for me Twitter I use as a sounding board so I would just post these things like this is what I see scripture teaching about gendered piety masculinity and what would happen is all the feminists would you know pull out their hair which was purple and short anyway <laughs> and they would just rage and I quickly realized that Biblical patriarchy, as, as I've defined it and as you've defined it, biblical patriarchy is what scripture teaches. Right? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go out there and just create something that I thought was cool. I wanted to see what the historical church has held to, and I wanted to see what scripture teaches. And as, you pre- as I presented those things, it was like very clear, okay, the enemy number one is feminism. Um, mm-hmm. It's really a revolt against God's order and against Mm -hmm. who God made men and women to be. And that's actually the irony in the fall in Genesis three is that that actually is spelled out as well. So one of the things I came across was you look at the first act of rebellion in the garden is Eve is essentially preaching the word of God to her husband. He allows her to do this. And then she gives him the sacramental food. And so Th- that's really the first case that we have where there's this female usurping and this husband mm-hmm. abdicating his role, the leadership role that is given and her role to follow, and then so everything you see in the feminist movement is really that in in different ways.
2: That's really good. Can you do you mind quickly just explaining why you have chosen to use the word patriarchy as opposed to complementarian? Entire episode dedicated to this. So, ladies, please please go listen to that. But I'd like you to explain here.
1: Yeah, there's there's two episodes. One is what is biblical patriarchy? And the other one earlier in season one was talking about what are some of the issues with complementarian theology? So the reason I'm very specific about using the word patriarchy is because patriarchy is an old historic word um, that was not, as it is now, taboo. It's really been vilified by the feminist movement. But if you look in about 1988, 1989, when John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Mary Cassian, and some other people uh, were getting together to discuss how are we going to respond to feminism and egalitarianism? Of course, their, what I would call a compromise is complementarian theology. But in Piper and Grudem's book and in other writings from like Mary Cassian, they openly reject what they call hierarchical and patriarchal language. Now, the reason I find this to be such a problem is because the Bible teaches hierarchy. Um, everywhere you look in scripture, including Ephesians 5, when you look at the command for a wife, she's told three times to submit to her husband and in three different ways in the Lord, as unto Christ, and as the church would submit to Christ. When you actually look at the Greek word for submit, it, it means literally like in military, you're, you're under someone in rank. Someone else has authority over you. And so there is a patriarchal and a hierarchical structure. And so I think we don't want to, I don't want to give ground to the wording that I think scripture uses, which is patriarchy and hierarchy. I don't want to give that away and say, no, you know, we're just co-equals. And yeah, maybe the husband has a tiebreak decision in, in where we get to eat. Um, it's actually a rank structure.
2: Yeah, there's no need to apologize for the language of scripture. Right. Yeah, because I've been asked it, that a lot, like, well, why don't you just say you're complimentarian and explain yourself to be patriarchal? I'm like, no, that's not the wording.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Recently,
2: I, I read a really terrible
0: book for a friend that we swapped books, but it was a egalitarian book, super liberal. But in the book, he was saying the Bible is patriarchal. He he admitted even that the ba- Bible is pa- patriarchal, but then go on to say that that's why we shouldn't believe what Paul says and things like that, because it's patriarchal. But it's like, no let's believe that it's patriarchal together and then embrace that God is wiser than us and that we can just leave it at that. It is patriarchal. We don't have to explain it away.
1: Yeah, that's right. And one thing I would say, um, it was actually uh, Jared uh, who pointed this out to me, but he said, really liberalism, all liberalism begins with embarrassment about the plain teaching of scripture. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what happens with that word patriarchy. And so I really wanted to do the opposite and say, you know what, I'm not going to be embarrassed about right. what scripture teaches I'm just going to say what it says and teach that. Mm -hmm.
2: It's Brian and I were just talking about this over the weekend. It's amazing how many uh, like secular accounts online are coming out as full on patriarchal, even though they're totally, you know, they're heathens, but they so see the goodness of patriarchy Mm -hmm. that they are like going full forward with it. It's really cool.
1: And I think the other part of that, and, and I'm sure we can delve into it too some more, but the other part of it is that's why it's so important for us to ground this argument in creation and in the nature of men and women, because yeah. even a pagan can recognize this is how men and women are made. It's not mm-hmm. about what you say you, you believe, like you're a man and that's going to come with you know, God's hardwiring, whether you like it or not. And so you can either live in obedience or, or you can revolt against that, but nature remains the same. And, and people, I think that's why you're seeing those accounts because people recognize that.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really, really good point. So what do you think it is about the patriarchy that creates happy women? Because I hear you talking about rank, and I, I can see why the feminists would revile against that. But what is it? Why do you think patriarchy makes happy women?
1: Yeah, I, I think the most important thing about it is that it's because that's the way that God has structured the world. And so you can recognize those realities and choose to live within them, and then you're going to flourish. That's the basic message of scripture and like Proverbs you know, proverbial wisdom, um, mm. or you can revolt against that. And you know, I, I've always told people it's kind of like if I have a gas vehicle and I just decide to pour diesel fuel in there because I decide that I don't. Well, I don't like gas. I want to do, mm. I want to do diesel. Okay. And well, you're going to destroy your engine. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of the first and foremost thing. That's who we are. That's who God created us to be. Um, the other thing is on the hierarchy issue and with submission. I think fundamentally all humans have to come into obedience in some way. They have to submit to some authority, ultimately to God. But even men, like we, we I submit to people all, all the time, right? I have pastors, I have elders, I have bosses that I submit to in one way or the other. And what we have to recognize is that this nature, this relationship of hierarchy and submission is God's idea and it's actually good for us. Now, mm-hmm. we also have to recognize in our sin that we are going to chafe against it. But, you know, it's the church submitting to Christ and his headship, and that's a good thing. And then we start looking at some of the other sides of that that rank and the patriarchal rule, and we see that it's Christ protecting his church. It's Christ nourishing and cherishing his church. It's Christ washing his church with the water of the word and sanctifying his bride. So I think when you have healthy patriarchy women will come to understand, like, this is a good thing for me. I'm being protected. We know in scripture, for instance, that women are prone to be misled by false teaching and doctrine. Um, We're told that explicitly. We see that with Eve in the garden. And so a husband can actually protect his wife. Once she learns to submit to her husband's authority in this way, she realizes, I'm safe here, right? And that's that's a good thing. I don't have to be tempted by every doctrine because my husband can lead and 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 be a steady force for me in that way i think particularly uh, one of the big issues is sexuality right the the big lie of feminism is that if you dress like a whore and you are a whore and you're you got in the sexual marketplace and you give yourself away to every single person every guy that you meet that then you will be free and happy and yep. the carnage of this 1960 onward is just everywhere yep. um you see that it's it's leading people to moral bankruptcy. And so in patriarchy, we're saying, listen, we want to protect our wives and daughters and our women in our churches. And so we say, marry one man and have sex with him and him only, and let your marriage bed be fruitful and have children. And within the bounds of marriage, you have this raging river that is safeguarded by these steep cliffs, who, and those cliffs keep your sexuality potent and powerful and a thing that can be used for God's glory. So this structure is, a, is another protection for a woman's sexuality. And the flip side, again, is feminism wants to put women in the, out in the marketplace, and really she becomes exploited, both sexually and for her body. Right? Women always say, well, I don't want to sit to my husband. I don't want him. I don't want to be his helpmate. So I'm going to go into the workplace, and I'm going to be an employer's helpmate. Well, yeah. That makes zero sense. And that guy is not going to care for you like a good husband will. And then I think finally, I would say, in regard to career and particularly vocation in the home, um, why does God teach that it's good for women to be in the home, to keep the home, to raise children, and to learn how to love their husbands? Because this is good for her. And the irony is, like, I've talked to all these career women, they're, you know, especially young 30s to mid 30s, realizing that. I've wasted most of my you know, my fruitful years, my opportunity to have children. They're barren. They're empty. They're very successful in their careers. But the number of people that I talk to who are just desperately lonely, um, wishing it was different, even who would say, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a feminist, they would claim that. Um, and then you compare that to the young women who are you know, faithful at home, fruitful at home. And by and large, they're happy right? Their husbands, if their husbands are leading well and protecting and providing for her, they're happy. And so we just point to that and say, this is good for women.
0: Right. Psychology article recently that it studied, okay, they're going to take all these statistics and who is the most unhappy people group in America. America. And it came out that the most unhappy person in America is a single woman, early forties with no children who has a highly successful career, either a doctor or a lawyer. And that that was the most unhappy people group in America. And I just, I find it reassuring, like, okay, of course, like this this is completely denying what God has called you to do as a woman. And we're seeing that that, again, it leads to more and more unhappiness when we're in more and more rebellion to the Lord.
1: Yeah. And I think you can see this, especially on Twitter. So you ladies, some of the other patriarchal women, like for the most part, the thing that's appealing about it is like, you're joyful, you're going about your work, you're you're with your kids, it's a beautiful thing everybody can see that. And then you have the raging feministas who are like you know, just nasty, awful, horrible, bitter people most of the time. And I look at that and I think, can you not see how bitter you really are? And of course the answer is no because sin is deceptive. But mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a good snapshot of of where those two paths lead. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. (laughs) I think too, just looking at history, like we know all three of us are post-millennial, unless you've changed your mind recently, Eric, but (laughs) never (laughs) we can see throughout history, like Christianity has by and large made just so many um, it's protected women in so many different circumstances. And I think it's just so unfortunate that when feminists go in and rewrite history, because they don't realize they're actually rejecting the very thing that has even got them to a place of having a voice.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you were even talking recently about, was it William Wilberforce?
1: Yes. Yeah, and I mean, it, it gets to this issue like with Wilberforce where he he was doing true justice and righteousness. Um, and then now people, you know, the, the modern equivalent is people like see themselves in the critical race Well, I'm doing what Wilberforce did. Well, Wilberforce was specific about, I want to reform, not destroy family institutions. Um, And really, it's this historical question. Number one, you have to recognize that every time we do history, we are always subjective interpreters. There is no such thing as a 100% neutral, objective historical view. And you see this in the way that people want to tell their own stories, but you also see it in the way that they want to reinterpret history. And I think what you have to understand uh, across the last couple hundred years especially is why people are trying to rewrite history. So one of the earliest feminist arguments that I have read is by Frederick Engels, and it's a paper that you can find online, but I think it's something like uh, Patriarchal Structures in the Family Unit or something like this. And in there, he actually is arguing for why patriarchy should be overthrown of course Engels is you know Marx and Engels they're they're working on their communist manu- manifesto and marxism. We say what is the connection with marxism and feminism? I think that feminism is a tool of the marxist who knew if we want to overthrow society fundamentally we have to take down fathers and family units. And so really feminism has been the tool to do that. So that's you know mid 1800s that a lot of that stuff is going on. And and I would say it's interesting when you evaluate the course of field in feminism because the first, second, and early third wave feminists, including the Marxists, including Engels, they all said, Look, you know, patriarchy, we get it. Patriarchy is the way it's always been. It's been that way since the beginning, but we need to overthrow it. Now what you're finding in the in the like, I guess, fourth and whatever we are wave feminism now is they're saying, Well, no, society used to be matriarchal and Non binary and blah, blah, blah. So you're even seeing that, like, they really don't even have a good grasp of what history is. They don't care. Um, it, there's been such a move away from facts to emotions, which is a very, you know, feminine, really feminist way of looking at the world, right? Emotionally. But I think fundamentally, it, it's all rooted in our failure to understand the history of Genesis one through three. Um, I have a podcast interview I did with Rich Lusk, and he brought this up. And it's it's a really good thing to keep in mind is that evolution, again, tied to Marxism and feminism, its whole goal was to undermine the historical veracity of Genesis 1 through 3. Well, that, guess what? That's where we find all the created nature, gendered piety uh, in scripture. That's, so if you can erode that, now you've eroded uh, family structures, sexuality, marriage, Right, these are God's intention for the foundations of society. So, really, if you can take those down in a historical revisionary schema, well, then you know you can start to undermine God's order, or so they think. Um, mm-hmm. What I always tell people too is, on the historical front, is again, just look at 1960 to now. I mean, even the feminists are lamenting. They're like, we need to destroy the patriarchy. Then they destroy the patriarchy. We need to free women's sexuality. Then they free it. And then you have feminists in like all the major publications crying about why are there no good men? How come families and society is falling apart? We don't know why this happened. Well, because you you, you destroyed those things or, you know, you at least did serious, serious damage to it. So just look at feminism from 1960 to now. It's been an unmitigated societal disaster.
2: Mm, oh, totally. And I think too, as post-millennialists, I believe that one of the major ways that Christ is going to... Built his kingdom is through families, yeah. so in that sense, you can see feminism kind of attacking the gospel going forward and multiplying.
1: Yeah, it it really is rooted in Genesis one, right? The first thing that man is told is be fruitful and multiply and go and have dominion. So, really, to fulfill the dominion mandate, and that's what is post mill people. That's what we're talking about. We're dominionists. We are to take dominion, and the way that we do that is we we go get married, we make babies, and we raise this little army who is going to overthrow the gates of hell. And the beauty of it, and this is what I always tell people, they're like, oh, patriarchy's dead, it's never coming back. And I said, patriarchy is as dead as gravity, meaning you can't change God's order. That's still there. And it's crazy because if you want to tick off feminists and you want to fill the hearts of men to rise up for the battle, all you have to do is audaciously stand out in the front of the line, in the front of the warfare, and proclaim these truths. And I'll do that, not because I'm just some guy asking for beating, but because I know that Christ has said these things are true, right? Mm-hmm. He's the captain of the Lord's army and we're going to follow him. And look, it, we may be in a day where it's like Jonathan, but Jonathan takes his armor bearer and they go and they assault thousands of the Philistine troops. And Jonathan says, you know, the Lord can save by many or few. And right now, maybe it's few, but we're still going to win. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So why is it that you think feminism, which is clearly opposed to God's ways, why do you think it's taken such root in the American church?
1: Yeah. Great, great question. I think one of the best books that I have read on this is by Ann Douglas, who is a early, not a new age, not fourth wave feminist, but an earlier feminist. So Ann Douglas and her book is called The Feminization of American Culture. And this book is particularly interesting because she traces it back to about 1800 in America. And there's a lot of forces at play here, but kind of the two dominant ones are the clergy and women. So a lot of it came out of the Unitarian movement, um, but you had a lot of women who got into publishing world, right? Books and publishing became really popular in the early 1800s. And so their voice grew. Um, Along with that, you really had Anglican, Unitarian, and some other denominations where the clergy became like radically effeminate. And a lot of it was because, look, the churches were full of women, so women had a larger voice. And then these women would—Anne Douglas says this—these women would raise kind of sickly boys who stayed at home and were educated by women— and could speak and live and operate in a woman's world. And so those were the natural selections for uh, clergy. Well, well, as you do this, and, and this is crazy, Anne Douglas, the feminist, says this. She said, it, with the erosion of Calvinist reform doctrine came the downfall of patriarchy. So I've often said that like, this is why, to me, they're connected. Reformed theology, Calvinism, they are what, is going to support a biblical patriarchy. Unfortunately, today we've lost that. You have a lot of guys claiming to be like the neo-Calvinists, but like they don't want to, they hate the law of God. Um, They don't want to see it applied in any sense of the way. You know, I mean like, you know, most of the Calvinists today are not high on the law of God. Um, So really these two forces, effeminate clergy, feminism. And the other thing I would add in there is the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution destroyed, I mean, more than any other force in the history of the world, destroyed the Christian family in many senses. And the reason it did that is because men left the home, so they're no longer working from the home like they would have been working a trade or on the farm or something like that. There's no longer home-based economy. And the women increasingly become either alone or, as Anne Douglas says, before they went into the workforce, this is more like early 1900s. But before they went into the workforce, they became, rather than being people who were producing as the household economy, like Proverbs 31, these industrious women, they became merely consumers of what their husbands produced. Well, that right there, I mean, that is kind of modern feminism in a nutshell um, that led to it. You get to 1950 and Rebecca Merkel will talk about this. Well- Yes, if your view of a mother in the home is sipping cocktails and trying to be thin for your husband and doing nothing and having no vital role to play in Dominion, then yeah, it is boring and you want to you get out of that. But this all traces back to the Industrial Revolution um, and really just pulling husbands out of the home, giving women uh, not so much an elevated role. Anne Douglas says, pre-Industrial Revolution, the women in the homes were revered. I mean, they were like, she says almost borderline worship. The men in the home led, but the women were like, they were pedestalized because the men, the sons and the the husbands, fathers, they knew how important those women were to a functioning household. So you take her out of a functioning economy of the home. She becomes uh, just a consumer and her worth goes down. Feminism thinks this is good. And so they keep spinning that off. The other interesting thing I'll say in the American culture is that Anne Douglas traces how really as women and effeminate clergy took over, it was a move away from doctrine and, an, and toward emotionalism. And so the churches became highly emotional. Church became this like inner heart language dialogue, me and Jesus in a relationship. Like if, mm-hmm. if you took out Jesus and put in the name of your boyfriend, it would still make sense, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the more of that you have you just have a continuing long slow march across the last century two centuries where feminism takes root men are continually abdicating their roles uh more and more they don't even have a role other than to just you know sometimes breed and 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 do what the women say and that's it and then finally i would say public education um has been a huge force. I mean, you think about it, you take young men in a household, pre-industrial revolution, especially they would have been from like the age of 12. They would have been working in the shop with dad and with other men. So their Mm -hmm. entire formative years of education are with and among men. Well, now, you know, public education is predominantly 99% female teachers, female administrators. Um, Why can't my kid sit still? Well, because he's a boy so you have a public education system that is doing that, and then indoctrinating them as well—that um, you know anything masculine is wicked, evil, you know, post-colonial, white, patriarchal—you know—that's all toxic. So we need to do away with it. And I think all those things have really, you know, over the last two centuries have really shaped our culture. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow. I I'm having so many connections right now. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about how like the liberals, the same liberal Christians who want to kind of downplay neutralized gender are the same ones who also want to downplay the dominion mandate yeah but what's ironic about that is that the desire to be productive does not change in the female heart so she is still seeking to be productive she's just doing it outside the home now because she doesn't want to be told that actually the way god may be building the kingdom is you in your home Mm -hmm. so it doesn't like go away it's just they go learn to do a trade outside the home instead of in the home now.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and if you if you read on that, some of the modern articles about this will generally talk about how unfair it is that women have gone to the workforce. Um, they're successful there. They're outpacing men. There is no gender wage gap. The women actually make more than the men if you you know compare apples to apples. But what's interesting is that they bemoan this because they say, well. They can just point to facts and they say, but even though women have gone to the workforce, they're still doing 90% of the housework and care for the children. And they think, you know, they'll say, well, it's because the men are pigs. Um, But we might look at that and say, well, it's because it's in a mother's nature. What did Adam say about his wife, Eve? She's the mother of all living. Rooted in a woman's nature is mothering and child rearing and being fruitful and taking care of her children. She's uniquely gifted in that. And so, yeah, you're right. You can't, you cannot escape that no matter how many times you try to neuter people physically or now we're doing that, you know, chemically, we're doing that uh, through surgery. You cannot change the imprint of God's design in sexuality.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I have so many more questions. We need to have like tons of spinoff episodes now. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, definitely, guys, be willing to check out Eric's... Well, you have two. You want to talk about the two different podcasts you have real quick?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So we have uh Dan Burkholder and I do the Wilderness Warrior podcast. That's a little bit more geared toward outdoor, father's training, sons, hunting, um, that sort of world, still with a lot of the masculinity and Christianity baked into it. And then I also do the Hard Men podcast, which is you know, pure, unadulterated masculinity, high octane, um, biblical patriarchy, that sort of thing. Um, both of those, you can find Wilderness Warrior, wilderness-warrior.com, um, or you can go to ericcon.com and you can check out podcast links there. Either one, you can, you can find both of those material. And then, of course, we're on um, all the major outlets, Spotify, of course, Apple Podcasts. You can find the material there as well.
2: My boys love listening to your podcasts.
1: That's awesome.
2: Ari was so excited. He was like, You're you're recording with Mr. Eric? How cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it when the first time I met Ari, he was we were talking guns and he says, Don't call me Ari, call me AR.
2: And I was <laughs> like, my gosh, are you kidding? And
1: we're in. For life now, brother.
2: <laughs> oh, so funny. Okay, well, he's he's such a dork. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I love I love it.
2: Well, cool. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. And um, maybe we'll have to continue this conversation some other some other way in the future.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and I would definitely love to do that.